Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. So this July, Chris and I will be celebrating 10 years of marriage together. Thank you. Yep, just getting started. Um, and so we were fortunate we're going to go on a, a trip um, to get away a little bit. And uh, we've got one of the best gifts I think we've gotten in our marriage, which is um, our kids are going to be cared for for 10 days uh, without us. So it'll be the longest time without kids since before we had kids <laughs> for us. And so we're really excited about that. And um, we uh, thankfully, the last few years, we've been saving, anticipating a nice trip. Um, and I uh, didn't anticipate we'd be like in church planning season, but thankfully we got the, we, we put the money away. And so we're able to go on a nice vacation. We're going to go to Puerto Vallarta, uh, for seven days and, um, we've been planning it and looking at all the places we want to go and, and all the things we want to do. We're not normally like beach vacationers cause we've been in San Diego for so long. We usually go to places like Portland and Seattle and go explore cities and stuff. But this time around, it felt really nice to be without kids and like sitting by a pool for like seven days straight and not doing anything. So very, very excited. In fact, if like over the last several weeks, if it's, we've had like a hard day or the kids are just going crazy, we found ourselves like looking at each other and just be like, where do I to? It's okay. Like we can make it. Like it's been our like rallying cry over the last few weeks. Um, but you know, as you think about like when you go on vacation, you're always imagining what it's going to be. You think about like where you're going to stay and you look at all the, the, the pictures online, read the reviews, you look at all the different uh, excursions you can go on. You imagine all the trips, but inevitably when you go on vacation, it doesn't always live up to like your expectations, right? There's something inevitably that doesn't go perfectly. Maybe it's like a meal you were looking forward to wasn't quite as good or the excursion, it was kind of like it fell flat or maybe the accommodations weren't as nice or you had like a, a rough run in with like someone in customer service or perhaps it goes like amazing. Then the only problem is at the end of it, you're like, man, I just wish it would go a little bit longer, right? But there's always just like something that's not like perfect. There's something that's just not quite off or quite right. And that's the case, not just in vacations, that's like what it looks like in our lives. Like all of us, if we think about our lives, there's, there's things in our lives that just aren't quite where we want them to be, right? Maybe your marriage isn't firing on all cylinders. Maybe you've got some like strife at work or there's a friendship that's a bit on the rocks or there's a family member maybe you're not quite in sync with. Uh, maybe your kids are struggling to listen to you or doing the things you're hoping that they would do with their lives. Uh, or maybe, you know, your house, like there's like those like, little projects you want to do, but you haven't gotten to for whatever reason, or, you know, you look at your bank account, it's like, I just wish there's a little bit more in there kind of thing. But there's like always these things that aren't quite perfectly right. And I, and I, I would guess that there's at least one thing, perhaps many things that you would say aren't what they should be in your life. And I would propose to you that perhaps it's because it's, you're not where you're supposed to be. And I would argue that all of us are actually not where we're supposed to be. Now, to sort of unpack this a little bit to get into it, uh, we're going to take a look at this uh, letter that Jeremiah wrote to a group of people. And I, I think there's a lot of similarities between their situation and where we find ourselves in our current situation as well. And so uh, Jeremiah 29 uh, is a, a famous chapter. It's one of the more famous verses uh, we find in this, 2911. Uh, you know, for, I know the plans I have for you, not to harm you, but to prosper you. I give you hope in the future, right? That comes a little bit after what we're going to look at in our passage today. But the context here is that you have Jeremiah who's a prophet and he's called by God to be a spokesperson on his behalf. Um, but this is an interesting call. I, I, I pray that I would never get the call of Jeremiah in my life, right? Because he has a ministry for like 30 plus years and he doesn't have a single convert. 
not one person believes a word he says, right? I mean, he would be a terrible church planner. Let's just be honest. Like he, he would not do well according to the metrics of today. But he, he's speaking on behalf of God and he's saying all the things that everybody doesn't want to hear, right? He's telling the kings, he says, listen, we've for so many years, for hundreds of years now, we've just, we've, we've rejected God. We've had all these other gods we've worshiped and false idols. And as a result, God's true to his word. He's going he's gonna to bring other countries to take us over and he's going to bring us into exile. Of course, no one wants to hear this and the kings, they don't want to hear this. And so they get other prophets and all the other prophets that aren't really true prophets are saying, no, no, don't listen to Jeremiah. Like God's going to save you. Like we're going to be here forever. It's going to be fine. And so Jeremiah just keeps saying the things that God asked him to say and is very unpopular. In fact, it gets him to put into loneliness and isolation for many years of his life. In fact, he gets death threats. He's, he's, he's accused of things. He's arrested. He's thrown in prison. At one point, they throw him into a well, a cistern, and he's there for a while before they finally pull him out right before he dies. Like He's got a really rough go of it, but he's, he's faithful to what God's asked him to do. And now we find ourselves where the things that he said were going to happen have happened, right? This foreign empire, this nation, Babylon, has come in. King Nebuchadnezzar has come in, and he's laid siege to all the cities of all the fortified cities in Israel, and then finally Jerusalem, and eventually he overthrows Jerusalem, and he captures it. And he takes all the prominent people, the kings and all the people, the nobles and the courts and all the educated ones, and he, and he exports them, takes them hundreds, thousands of miles away to Babylon, to his home country. And he leaves like just a few people behind, uneducated, like a remnant of people. And Jeremiah is one of those people. And he's left behind. And as he's sitting there, he gets another word from God. He says, listen, I want you to write a letter to the people that have been taken out, who have been made exiles in Babylon. I want you to tell them a few things. And so that's where we picked up uh, this passage. So I'm going to read it to us again here. And just listen to what God has to say to this group of people. And you imagine, put yourself in their shoes, right? They're, they're thousands of miles from home thinking like, what, God has forsaken us. Like, what are we going to do? Like this foreign king, this pagan nation, like we're, we're, we're here. Like, are we ever going to get a chance to go back to our true home? And so this is what the Lord of the armies, Jeremiah 29, 4 says, The God of Israel says to all the exiles that I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. you don't, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. Right? So we're going to just unpack this a little bit. This was a very, very shocking message to these people. They probably wouldn't have liked what they, what they heard from Jeremiah. Not that they ever liked what Jeremiah had to say to them, but hopefully by now they've really at least realized like maybe he actually knows what he's talking about because he did say we were going to get deported and here we are in this foreign land. So just four things I want to kind of break down. One, God's sovereign control. Um, the second thing is um, pursuing the well-being of the city. And then the final, the two more things there, pursue the city's prosperity, settle in, and then finally, don't listen to false prophets. So these are four messages that uh, Jeremiah gives to them in this short passage. So the first thing, God's sovereign control. Uh, when I first was looking at this, the thing that really jumped out at me first is, if you notice in verse four, what it says, it says that the God of Israel says to all the exiles that I deported, I deported you, not, not the king of Babylon, but I'm the one that did this. He says it again in verse seven. He says, pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. I'm the one who brought you here, right? This idea that, that God was out of control. Jeremiah, the first thing he's saying, no, no, remember, he's still God of Israel. That's what he says. He's the host of the Lord's armies. 
He's the God who, of, of all the armies. He's the God of Israel, your God. And he's the one who has sent you where you are right now. He's, his hand is behind this. And so all the force that King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, could have mustered wouldn't have been anything if God hadn't ordained it, that they were to be exiled. Of course, we know this was going to happen because way back uh, in Genesis, uh, when, I'm sorry, in Exodus, when Moses is giving the commands to the, to the nation at Mount Sinai, he says, listen, eventually you guys are going to want a king and it's not going to go well for you. And eventually you're going to turn your backs on God and he's going to, he's going to exile you. Uh, he's going to take you to the promised land, but then eventually he's going to take you there. And, he, and we see it now coming to fruition in Jeremiah's day. You see, if God wasn't, if God was in fact behind this, the first thing it reminds them is that he never is meant to harm them or bring them harm. He's doing this for their good. And that would have been so difficult for them to hear, right? Because they were thinking, well, what, what have we done wrong? This can't be good because we're in this foreign land. We're not in our homeland. We're not in the promised land. Like, this isn't a good thing. And yet God says, no, no, I'm the one who's behind this. Now, we likewise, we, we are greatly uh, comforted when we try and reconcile the troubles in our life. If we remind ourselves that it's God who's in control, that if he's the one who's appointed the things in our life, then we can rest assured that it's ultimately for our good and that God's never wanting to do us harm, even if it doesn't look like what we want it to, even if it means going somewhere we never thought we would go before. And he's also telling them, look, if God's behind it, you need to make the best of the situation. Like you need to figure out what it is that can be good and where you're at because I'm the one who ultimately has ordained it and ordered you to be in this particular place and time. Now, look, none of us here are from Sonoma, right? I don't think any of us were born in this place. Well, sorry, we got one. It's cool. There's few of us, the remnants, the few that are they're from here. But, but most of us, we, we were brought here, right? Whether it be for family or for a job or for a career, whether it was like, you know, just we sense God was calling us here or it's just God says, hey, go plant a church here. Like God brought us here. He was behind all that. And even in previous generations, like brought families to this place. So God is behind it for all of us. And I think the question isn't, am I supposed to be here? That's not the question. The question is, God, why did you bring me here? For what purpose? What is it that you have for me here? Because I know that you've ordered my steps to bring me to this place. There's no mistaking that. Just like you took these, these Israelites from their promised land. And you have to remember how shocking that was for them, right? They were given a promised land because they said, this is the land that God has for you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they went to the promised land and they, they carried God's very presence with them in the ark, right? And it was like the hot spot of God's presence. Then they built a tabernacle in the desert, like it's a tent, which tabernacle just means God's dwelling place, like he's dwelling among us. And they would carry him all around wherever they went. And then they got to the promised land and they said, let's set up a more permanent place for God's like presence. And so they built the temple and they put that in the middle of Jerusalem, their capital. And that became their political and their religious center of their nation. And, and people would take trips a couple times a year for all the high holy days to go be closer to God's presence, right? Not like as we understand it now where God's spirit's with us, God's everywhere. But back then the idea was that we had to be physically in a place close to God. And so their land, their part of Jerusalem and Israel, that was like a significant aspect of what it meant to be the people of Israel. Like this is where God is ultimately dwelling. Like his presence is, is sort of like that Wi-Fi hotspot is right here in the center of the temple. So to be taken from that would have been just so unnerving and just so like unsettling for them to think, I guess God has abandoned us. He's not with us anymore because we're so far from him. And yet God through Jeremiah tells him, he says, no, no, I'm still behind all of this. I'm still your God. I'm still the God of Israel. I'm the one who've ordered your steps. So settle in, right? Now it's time for you to understand I've got something for you in this new place. Yes, I would have loved to keep you there, but this had to have happened for me. My purpose is to, to, to come to fruition. 
So the second thing we see in this is he tells them, look, settle in. Just like settle down and get comfortable. You're not going anywhere, right? We find out later that Jeremiah tells them in this letter that it's going to be 70 years before they come back to Israel, before they are allowed to come back to Jerusalem. So most of this generation he's writing to, they're not going to see that. It's going to be their kids or their grandkids that are going to see that opportunity to return back home again. So he's telling them, look, I want you to settle in. Like, don't just count the days until you return home. I want you to, to make the most of it, right? The reality is, is if you're not settled somewhere, then you're going to spend most of your time not really investing in where you are. Like you're never going to give yourself fully over to whatever it is you're called to do, your career, your friendships, your relationships. You'll never be fully there because there'll be sort of one foot in, one foot out. Like, okay, I don't know if I'm supposed to be and maybe God's got something different. And so you'll never fully apply yourself to what it is that God has for you. But you will find yourself getting tired because you'll constantly be asking those questions and saying, oh, am I supposed to be here? And, you know, provoking other people with your expectations that you think things are supposed to be better. You're supposed to go somewhere else. And eventually that disappointment that you might have with whatever the situation is that you're dealing with can turn into despair. And now instead of it being sort of an opportunity to make the most of it, you find yourself much more miserable than it otherwise would be. But God's saying, no, no, you're here and I want you here while you're here to settle in. I want you to build houses, plant gardens, right? Make the most of what you have, build relationships, build friendships, right? Get married, have kids. The normal activities of life should be resumed regardless of where you find yourself. God's inviting the people of, 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 of uh, Israel to make this commitment. And, it's, and I love that specifically the language he uses, right? Build, plant, marry, have babies, and marry them off. Um, commentator and theologian Matthew Henry says this, in all conditions of life, it is our wisdom and duty to make the best of that which is and not to throw away the comfort of what we may have because we may not have all we would have. Let me take a moment to reread that because it can be a little confusing in the language, it's a little bit older. But the idea is that, look, wherever you find yourself, build houses, plant gardens, make friends, build, build social networks, settle in, get rooted, plant yourself in that soil that, that I put you in. Uh, reminds me of Psalm 1, the beginning of the book of Psalms, which kind of lays out what it's going to look like throughout this whole book. And in, the, in this short Psalm, he's comparing the righteous and the wicked. In the first part, it talks about what righteous one, people do, and then it talks about what wicked people do. And so in verse 3, he says this about the righteous. He says, He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams to bear its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Again, the language there, get planted. Right, So you can just sense that Jeremiah, he's calling upon these psalms, he's calling upon David's words, and he's saying, listen, once you get planted, this is what righteous people do, get planted, get rooted, so that wherever you find yourself, you can be fruitful in that season. That as long as you're planted in healthy soil, that you'll, you'll find yourself abundantly planted. But notice what it says in verse 4, the wicked are not like this. They're not planted, they're not rooted. Instead, they're like the, the kernels of the shaft of the wheat that just gets blown away easily by just a, a light, gentle breeze. He says, don't be like that. I want you to get planted. I want you to get rooted where you are. I know that you're in a pagan country and they're worshiping false gods, but I want you to be my light there and I want you to get planted in that soil. He says, have sons and daughters. Uh, The language there, beget sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Right? Again, as as we hear those languages, we should be thinking back to Genesis 1. It's like that hyperlink sort of in our minds. Like I've heard this language before. Go back to Genesis 1, 28. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Notice the similarity there, same language. God's saying, look, I don't want you to decrease. I want you to multiply and increase there in Babylon. 
Like you are still my representatives. You're still to reflect my love to those around you. So get planted, have some kids, get those kids married so they can have kids. I want you guys to increase. Like just what happened in Egypt, right? When Joseph went down there with his, his family and brought them all down and there's like 60 or 70 of them. And pretty soon they turned into a nation of 2 million people. They were like abundantly multiplying in that place. And God says, look, now you're in Babylon, right? I, I've, this is, I'm, I'm behind this. I'm, my hand is at work here. My sovereign control over all things is at work. So I want you to get rooted and get multiplied there. Start to increase and grow. And this is, you know, a reminder simply that God's plan, the one that he instituted at the beginning of all things, he says, listen, I want humans, the ones made in my image, my image bearers to co-rule on my behalf. I want you guys to cultivate and create with the things that I give you, the raw materials of the earth. I want you to be my agents of, of, of cultivating civilizations and societies together and making abundantly good things. That same plan is still in play. And he's telling the people that, listen, despite your displacement and despite the fact that you're captives in a foreign land, that is still going on. That plan has not been scrapped. That's still my plan. And I'm still at work making that happen. But now I want you to do it in a different context. I want you to do it in a different way, perhaps that you never thought you would do. So he tells them first, the first thing they need to do is be reminded that he's in control. Second is to settle in. The third thing he tells them is he wants them to pursue the well-being of the city. Now, if the earlier instructions were like unnerving for them, this one is just downright shocking for them, right? Because first of all, he tells them, look, you're not going anywhere. Like I'm the one that brought you there. Settle in because it's going to be at least 70 years before you come back uh, to your homeland. But now he tells them, look, I, I want you to um, seek the welfare of the city you find yourself. And yes, I want you even to pray for it. I want you to pray for, uh, for Babylon and pray for its leaders because that's where you're going to find your prosperity. Like this would have just been so scandalous to the hearers of Jeremiah's letter. He would have been like, what, what are you talking about? How can we pray for these people? Like, Jeremiah, these, this is the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who like laid waste to our homeland. This is the one who sieged all of our cities. Thousands died at his hand through famine and pestilence, through the sword and, and, and fighting. And you want us to pray now for this pagan nation. Like you want us to pray for them and seek their will. Like I, he's, it just would have been so shocking. And, and of course, this is lost on us a little bit. Like we don't have any sort of frame of reference to really get this. I guess, you know, we could think about maybe, I don't know, about 10 years ago, it kind of be like if, if ISIS came in and like invaded like Sonoma and like wiped out like half the population and took the other like 20, 30% and left just like a few people behind. And then we said, hey, listen, now that you're like in their captivity, pray for them. Pray for those people that came in and killed a bunch of people that you knew and that are now holding you captive, like seek their welfare and pray for them. Like that's probably the closest we can imagine what it would be like to hear these words that Jeremiah was saying to these people. And that's exactly what he's saying. He said, listen, I want you to pray for them. Pray for your enemies, right? Of course, how would you receive this, right? I mean, how would you receive that message from Jeremiah? Just like the, just the unnerving nature of that. Like, how do we pray for these people? But he's saying, listen, I, I don't want you just to like go about your life and like create this, like mind your business, keep to yourself, create this little like bubble in your life. Don't create this like Christian bubble. Don't create this little like insular group that you can just do life with and like never interact with those around you. He's like, I don't want you to do that. He says, I want you to engage. I want you to engage with the people that you find living next door to you, that you find across the desk at work. I want you to engage with them and I want you to pray for them. I want you to, to seek their prosperity, pursue them, pr promote and, and positively pray for the welfare of, of Babylon. Of course, as we think about this and we meditate a little bit, we realize that what Jeremiah is doing is he's pointing ahead to the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying someone else is going to come along and tell you something similar to what I'm telling you right now. Of course, we know him to be Jesus. Uh, Matthew 5, 43, it says this. 
You have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. Uh, This is the only place, Jeremiah 29, where we see that prayer for one's enemies is actually commended in the Old Testament. It's not that we have Jesus come on the scene on the Sermon on the Mount and otherwise he's saying, listen, I want you to, to bless those who persecute you and pray for your enemies. Jeremiah is the first and only one in all of the Old Testament that references this. And he's pointing ahead to what Jesus is going to tell us is that, look, to live a life of the kingdom of God, it requires you to be thinking upside down. It requires you to realize that I'm going to ask you to do stuff that is going to seem so counterintuitive and so against your own nature, but that's exactly what it looks like in my kingdom. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. I want you to pray for those who make your life difficult. I want you to seek their prosperity because in it, in the place you find yourself, that's where you're going to find your prosperity. Now, this is practical advice. Like, if you just think about it, it, it makes sense. Like, the Israelites are captives. They're like the they're, they're like slaves, as you were, servants in Babylon. So if Babylon goes to war and it doesn't go well, then who's going to suffer the worst? It's going to be the Israelites. They're going to have it worst of all because they're captives in this other nation. And so it's very practical advice. Like, look, if Babylon does really well, even though you're captives there, your life's going to be better because the better it is there, the better it is going to be for you. So this is actually really practical advice that Jeremiah is giving, but uh, there's a big difference between practical advice and, and easy to follow advice, right? Just because it makes sense, just because that, that, that logically would make sense is not that it's going to be easy to do. It's never been easy to pray for one's enemies. It's never been easy and it never will be, but that's exactly what God's asking us to do. That's what he wants to do, just to deal with it. Like that's what he's asking. He's saying, look, I want you to pray for those who make your life difficult. And so that's exactly what they did. They, they prayed for Babylon. They, they went after and engaged, and they, and they built their houses, and they planted gardens. And, and, and Matthew Henry, again, he has a great quote. He says, look, every passenger is concerned in the safety of the ship. Like, if you're on a boat out at sea, like, you want that ship to do well. Because <laughs> if it doesn't, it's not going to go well for you. Even if you're, like, in the bottom deck of the ship, and you're in the boiler room, and your life is miserable— you still want things to go well in that ship because it means that your, your welfare goes with it. So wherever you find yourself, seek the prosperity of those around you because if it goes well there, it will go well for you as well. And the final thing Jeremiah tells him, he says, listen, don't listen to those people who are tickling your ears. Don't listen to those false prophets telling you what you want to hear. They're not, Lord, the Lord didn't send them. They're, they're telling you things that aren't true. And there's a lot of people today that are telling us that we should rebel against Babylon. There's, there's the whole Christian nationalistic movement that's saying, you know what, like overthrow the government. They're a bunch of kooks and every, the liberal progressive movement, the woke movement needs to be overturned and all that. But you have to ask yourself, like, where does that lead you to? There's many today in the name of Christ that are proclaiming that. They're saying like, look, you're in Babylon, you, you know, like make life difficult for them, like rebel and don't, don't do anything that they tell you to do. But then we have to ask ourselves, how does this ultimately lead us toward loving our neighbor? If that's the the path that we're going to choose, if we're going to choose rebellion and disobedience and like stirring up trouble everywhere, how how are we going to love our neighbors, let alone our enemies? Like that's not the the sacrificial enemy love that Jesus has invited us into. And so like the Israelites in Babylon, we too are exiles in a foreign land. We find ourselves in a very similar situation. Ultimately, this is not our home. Uh, I love the quote by C.S. Lewis when it comes to this. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, no matter how great things get here, even if you're from Sonoma, no matter how great things get here, this ultimately isn't our home. We know that. 
Like we are citizens of heaven. That's our ultimate home. And that's ultimately the place that we were meant to be, that we were made for. So there will never be the perfect situation here on earth. There will never be the perfect marriage, the perfect relationship, the perfect home. There will always be things that are just slightly off because we live in a fallen world. Our own sin nature wars against us and we, the flesh and the spirit war against each other and cause things not to go the way we want them to go. Things will never be perfect, but it, we need to embrace this idea that we are in fact exiles in Sonoma. It, well, the minute we said yes to Jesus, we became exiles. That we're no longer, this is no longer our home. This is no longer the place we call home. And I, whenever I think about this, it always reminds me of like that early 2000s, like not of this world. You guys, you guys remember that? It's one of those like cringe, yeah, most of you guys are too young. You're like, no, I don't remember what that is. So this is like the late 90s, early 2000s. Like this was the thing, you know, like I'm not of this world. Like I belong to heaven. Yeah, you know, and it was one of those cringeworthy. You look back on like Christian things. You're like, oh man, did we really do that? Yeah, like there was like, it was on t-shirts. It was all over the place. Everyone had it. Like people didn't even get tattoos of this because like it's got the, you know, it's the cool grungy gothic like type font, which, you know, it's really not that cool. By the way, that organization's still around and they've changed their logo completely. So it's, uh, they, they, they must have learned from it. But anytime I think about that, I always think, so I'm just showing my age apparently. It's fine. Um, so what does it look like to be exiles? I'm um, just going to kind of break this down into three uh, parts. Um, the beginning, the end, and the confusing in between right? What did it look like in the beginning? What does it look like at the end? And now we find ourselves in this weird middle place. So um, in the beginning, um, we had the garden. Everything was perfect. We had perfect relationship with God. We had perfect relationship with each other. God designed us in his image. He gave us this incredible royal position of co-rulership with him. And he says, listen, I want you to be my ambassadors here on earth. And I want you to cultivate, take these amazing raw materials I'm giving you and cultivate and create wonderful things. Have babies, like just enjoy life. Right. And then, of course, we decided that God was holding out from us like he was holding back and we wanted to define good and evil on our own, just like we do every day. And so our original parents said, we're not going to trust God and we're going to listen to the lies and we're going to take from the fruit of the tree we're not supposed to. And now all of a sudden they get banished from the garden because God says, look, I don't want them to live forever in this state because now they can see good and evil and, and we don't want to live like this forever. So. He banishes us from the garden. Still in Eden, but they're banished from the garden, right? But in the beginning, it was it was perfect. We were home. We were 100% where we were supposed to be. We were at home. And that just that that trend just continues, right? With Adam and Eve's first kids, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his younger brother Abel out of jealousy. And then, of course, he gets banished. He's now in exile. He can't stay in Eden. He's got to go even further east away from it. And that just keeps going on. And we see that, you know, Joseph... He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. He gets exiled into Egypt. But then again, God's sovereign control brings him to the second in command of all of Egypt. He saves all of Egypt and a bunch of other people as a result of God's faithfulness, brings his family out to Egypt. And then his people, a new Pharaoh comes in and doesn't recognize Joseph anymore. And now Israelites are now slaves and now they're exiles for 400 years. But again, this was foretold as uh, God was talking to Abram. He says, listen, I'm going to, you don't have any kids yet. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some offspring and they're going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. And I'm going to bless all the nations through your line. And then he tells them in, in Genesis 15, 13, he says this, The Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens, it's another word for exiles, for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. So well before it happened, he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go into a foreign land and you're your kids are going to become a big old nation, but they're going to be exiles for almost 400 years. And then I'm going to deliver, I'm going to take them to a promised land. So we just see this theme of exile happening over and over again. So fast forward all the way to the end. 
We know how it started, went, went off the rails pretty quick. In the end, what does it look like? Apostle John has this vision. He gets caught up in this vision of Jesus and what it looks like in the end. We know that is Revelation. And at the end of that book in Revelation 21, 3, it says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling with, is, is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. We have this beautiful picture, like just, just as in the beginning when it was what it was supposed to be, God dwelling amongst his people, us having a relationship with him, 100% communion with him. And now we look in the end, that's exactly what's going to happen again. God's going to renew the heavens and the earth, bring them together again. He's going to be in our midst, dwelling with us. We're going to be dwelling with him, with each other for all of eternity, without pain, without sickness, disease. It'll be exactly where we'll finally be home again. And we have that inheritance. We have that hope no matter what we face here. So that's how it started. That's how it's going to end. But now we're in this like confusing in between. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's the one human that none of us could ever be. He lives the perfect life without sin. He does what was foretold of the chosen one, the Messiah. He dies for our sins. He rises from the dead. He conquers evil once and for all by giving into it. He overcomes it. And now he ushers in. That's the one thing he said over and over again. The, the gospel is here. The kingdom of God is here at hand. I'm bringing the kingdom of, of God. The kingdom of heaven is here right now. So, the kingdom of heaven is here, but then why do we still have pain? <laughs> why do we still have difficulty in relationship? Why do we still struggle with things? Why are still things not the way they're supposed to be? Well, it's because we're in this like confusing in between. This the kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully realized. So there are moments in our life where God breaks through, right? There's these miraculous moments of healing, of, of breakthrough from addiction, or just a, a sense of God's presence that's overwhelming in us, or just clarity or peace of mind. We just have these moments of encounter with God where it's like, oh, I just, I get this glimpse. It's like this sign pointing me ahead of what's to come. That, that Revelation 21 ending where it's, I'm going to be with God and like all my pain goes away and I perfect fellowship and relationships with people and with God. And we have those moments in our life, but they're sort of infrequent. They're not all the time because God hasn't come back yet. He says, listen, I'm going to come back and I'm going to renew everything and make it right. But we're in this time now where we get to be his ambassadors. We get to walk in this between two worlds. We're exiles from heaven where we know is our ultimate home. And yet we live out our life here on earth where things are broken and, and difficult and, and not easy and painful. But we get to be his ambassadors. We get to be the ones as signposts pointing ahead to what's to come. And so there's a, a, a short letter at the end of the New Testament. We'll just spend a couple minutes on. Uh, it was written by the apostle uh, Peter. And Peter knows a lot about screwing up, doesn't he? He, uh, you know, if anybody knows about, you know, getting second chances, Peter's that guy. Uh, but he's writing in First Peter to a church and he's telling them, listen, I want you guys to get ready because persecution is coming. Difficulty, pain is coming in your life. And I just want to send you a couple words of encouragement to, to help you along as in what you're going to face. So the beginning of First Peter 1, he says this. It starts off by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, listen, I'm, he identifies himself as an apostle. He says, and he, look, I know who I'm writing to. I'm writing to exiles. Y'all are in, in, in these different places, all in the Gentile world, the, the pagan world, and you're followers of Christ. And there's only a few of you, and I just want to encourage you. And then a little bit later in his letter, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. 
And it's interesting because he says almost exactly what Jeremiah had told the Israelites to do when they were in Babylon. He says, listen, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors or to those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise who do what is good. For it is God's will. Again, that sovereignty of God. Peter's reminding him. It is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Just like Jeremiah, Peter's telling these new Christians as exiles all spread out throughout the Roman world at the time. He says, listen, I want you to live lives that are above reproach. I want you to live and do good things so that when people try and slander you for my name, they'll, they'll be confounded by saying, I, we don't have anything bad to say about them because they're doing good things. Like we, we have to honor God because of what they say, who they say they believe, right? He's telling them, look, honor the emperors, like honor the authority that God and his sovereignty has put over you. Like, do you ever find yourself like, like wondering like, why is this person in charge? You know, like whatever that looks like. And yet for some reason, God's sovereignty and his control is still at work. Like he's not taking his hand off the wheel. He's not like slipped up and be like, oh gosh, I let that one slide through. Like, no, no, he's still in control. He still has, has his hand at work and all this. And it's a mystery of how it all comes together, right? It's this amazing tapestry that God's weaving. And we are just small bits of that, like small little pieces of yarn in this great tapestry. And I know a lot of times we want to see the whole thing. We want to figure this out. And we want to tell God like, hey, you're not really doing it right. Like if you just move these pieces, things would go better. And yet we have such limited knowledge of the whole picture of what God's trying to do. And, and Jeremiah and Peter both telling us and telling the early Christians and the Israelites saying, listen, settle in, like live a good life, like go about your life and build a house and plant gardens and have kids and make friends and live a good life and represent me well and do good works, love each other and like pray for those people that make your life really hard because then they won't have anything bad to say about you and they'll have to glorify my name. Like that's what he's inviting us into. He's saying, listen, you just, you got to embrace the fact that you're not home. And it's not going to ever be exactly like you want it to, but you just got to embrace it. You got to suck it up and start moving forward. And so as God's people, as Christians, we realize that just like the, the, the people that Peter was writing to, they were exiles in their own homeland, right? Even if this is home, this still isn't your home, right? They were exiles in their own families because they said yes to Jesus. They were exiles in their places of work. They were exiles in their neighborhoods. Everywhere they went, they were different because of Jesus, just like us, everywhere we go, we are going to be different because of Jesus. Life was not easy and life isn't guaranteed to get easier simply because we know of who we follow and that we, we expect that persecution will come and we just need to be ready for it. Not just hoping that it doesn't happen. And when it does happen, being like, oh gosh, I can't believe this. And what are we going to do? But let's get ready knowing that it's probably going to come. Jesus said as much, if you follow me, they're going to persecute you if they persecuted me. So get ready. And of course, living as exiles means suffering for a faith in a world that finds faith off-putting and oftentimes weird, right? It's, it's not easy to live this way, and maybe you know a little bit of what that's like, um, but our world is not much different than that first century Christian world that Peter was writing to. Um, they were living in what's, what would be considered a pre-Christian world. We're living in what's more increasingly being known as a post-Christian world, right? So at that time, like Christianity was not like, it was just starting to spread. It wasn't like a mainstream religion. And so... Uh, the world didn't understand those people. They didn't understand that first century people that, that Peter was writing to. Uh, you know, this idea that like Jesus was king made no sense to people in this. They're like, no, no, there's like Caesar. He's the king. Like, who's this Jesus that you're talking about? Like their, their way of life made no sense. Like, I mean, after all, like who follows a crucified king? It doesn't make any sense, right? And, and who like worships a God 
that claims victory in a cross. You know, like, hey, look at our God. Like, look at the electric chair. He's our guy. Like, that's, you know, that's what our crosses are, basically, that we wear. Like, that doesn't make sense to people. Like, who who wants to worship a God who loses to win? Like, that doesn't, you know, that's just not, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, at least to our modern understanding. But today, this isn't pre-Christian. We live in a post-Christian world. Like, the Christianity of our cultural's past, like, what our, our nation supposedly was founded on and maybe what perhaps was, was thriving in the 50s and 60s, perhaps, like, that's gone. That's just continuing to fade in the background. Like, it's more and more common that when people enter into a church that they have very little to, to no understanding of the Bible. Whereas, you know, 40 years ago, it would be common understanding that, well, of course, people are going to go to church, one. And two, when they come, they actually read their Bible and have like a little bit of working knowledge. Today, we, we can't think that way. Like, that's just not the reality for most people. And it's weird and it's hard to live as a Christian in our current world. But um, I love uh, sociologist Charles Taylor. He wrote a, bo- a book called A Secular Age. And he's, he's talking about these dynamics. And in his introduction, he says this, the shift to a secular age consists, among other things, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest one to embrace. Like That's the reality. That's what we have to start to get our minds wrapped around in terms of being in a post-Christian world. In other words, in our day, Christianity is still an option. It's just not the best one for most people. It's just not the one that most people are going to naturally turn to. It's not the, the one they're going to get handed to from their parents because that's just not something the parents are even doing anymore. Uh, and it's certainly not the easiest one. Um, but in Peter's day, Christianity was barely even an option. In our day, it's an option because of our history. But again, it's not really a, a good one for most people. And so we went from a society in which it was, as Taylor says, virtually impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. Like those are just the waters that we're now swimming in. And so it's just going to be very different for us. And we just, again, this idea of being in exile, we have to really understand how pertinent that is to us. And so, you know, Christianity isn't the most attractive option to our flesh, if we're being honest. Like waiting on God doesn't really work for impatient people. I don't know if you guys know any impatient people. Maybe in the morning in the mirror, you might meet one occasionally. But I I know a few in my life, um, starting with myself. Uh, but we've got a lot of different gospels that are out there too, right? Like the prosperity gospel that just says God wants us to be healthy and wealthy to the victim gospel, which says God just wants to coddle us, uh, to the Christian nationalism, which it leads to eventually storming the Capitol building. Like these are all options, right? And, and somewhat veiled in the name of Christ, but to live a truly Christian life of faith in Christ alone is to live as as an exile in this world. Like that's what it's going to look like. Like it always has been and always will be. To follow Christ truly, to follow Christ means you're in exile. You're never going to be the popular one. You're never going to be the, the one that's in power. That's just not what it is. It's, it's to be strangers in a strange land. It always has been, always will be. And I guess my just encouragement is that we just need to embrace that. Just to really get settled in on that and say, okay, that's, that's what our identity, that's what, what it's going to look like for us. Um, and so thankfully we get from Peter the reminder. And then of course from Jeremiah, we get what it looks like. like how do we actually live it off? And again, or live it out. What Jeremiah tells us is, is, build, plant, marry, have babies, marry them off. And then go beyond that. Seek the prosperity of the city. In other words, settle in, be fruitful, multiply, rule it, subdue it, create and cultivate, make good things in the place that I've, I've, I've allowed you to dwell in. And then, of course, in the words of Jesus, it goes back to the very simple thing of loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. It starts there. How well are we doing at loving our neighbor? The ones we like and the ones that 
man, is there anybody else going to move in that house anytime soon? Right? Like all of them deserve our love if we truly are to be ones that follow Christ. And so with um, all of our teachings, as we start to engage more, as we start to meet more regularly, we always want to have a practice. The, the things we've talked about sound good. They, they make sense. Okay. But then what does it mean to actually implement them in our life? Again, we're not a faith of just of, of knowledge in our head, but we want to like embody the things that we, we embrace as followers of Christ. So how do we live this out? How do we actually practically go about this? And so the practice I wanted to invite you into this month is a practice of hospitality. Hospitality. Now, I'm not talking about like just having people over for dinner. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not, that's not it. Um, one of the things I always think about when I think about the practice of hospitality is I look at how Jesus did it. He's usually a good place to start. He didn't have a house. So for any of you who said, I can't be hospitable because I don't have enough room in my house, look at Jesus. He never had a house. He never owned one. I don't think he rented one that I can understand. He, had, he was an itinerant minister who traveled around for three years. He had a three-year ministry and he never had a place to call home. He lived outside and he, he counted on, quote, the hospitality of others. But what's interesting is that every time there was a meal, even though it wasn't his house, he was the host. Everywhere he went, he says, hey, I'm going to go have a dinner at your house and it's going to be great. And I'm going to be the host, by the way. Now, I'm not sure if that's, you know, your personality is like squirming with the idea of like inviting yourself over to someone's house. But I always say that just to remind us that hospitality isn't for the people who have big houses with lots of space in them. That's not what it means to be hospitable. What it means is to go and seek the marginalized, go and seek those who are on the fringes, to go and be a neighbor and to love your neighbors and to find out how you can be a, a loving neighbor to them. And so, yeah, it could be inviting your neighbor over for a meal. That's a good place to start. It might even be just finding out what your neighbor's name is. Maybe you're not even at that point yet. Like, who is it that lives next, next door to me? Let me go and just inv- and introduce myself. Find, find out their name. Start praying for them. That's a great way to be hospitable to those that live around you, right? Take, make, make a prayer list. Make a, a list of people that you run into, you know, every day. Maybe it's the person who makes coffee for you every day or the person, you know, at, at work. But write those people down and say, listen, as, as my act of hospitality, I'm going to start praying for you. I'm going to start praying for the needs in your life, that God would, would continue to pursue you and he would draw you to him. He would bring you to salvation. I'm going to start that practice of hospitality. Uh, but then it means, yeah, it means having people over for a meal. Maybe it's finding out how you can demonstrate love to that person. Like what are their needs? I mean, maybe they need help around the yard or around the house. Maybe they need a ride somewhere. Maybe they, you know, they're struggling with something that you can actually su- supply for them or provide them and tangibly sacrifice your time and your energy and be a neighbor that shows love through their actions. Uh, there's a great book uh, I would recommend on this topic of hospitality. Uh, it's got a great name, uh, the title too. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And so the author of this book, her name is Rosaria Butterfield, um, a really fascinating story. She um, was a professor at Syracuse, which is actually the university I went to and found out we actually were there at the same time, although I didn't have her for any classes. Um, because she taught a lot of like feminism classes, which, you know, I really wasn't, that wasn't on my major, uh, to say the least at that time. Um, but anyway, she was, um, she was a, an outspoken, um, progressive liberal. She was a lesbian and she was a, a, a literature English, um, professor and she had just ri- written her tenured paper. So she was now tenured at Syracuse. And she decided at that point, like what was the next project for her was she wanted to write about how the, like the, the like ultra conservative right wing was so anti LGBTQ. Like what, what was the deal there? And she just wanted to explore that. So she wrote like an article and put it out there and like got a lot of response, I think on both sides. And, uh, and one of the responses she got was a letter from a local, um, reformed Presbyterian pastor in Syracuse. 
and his name was Ken or Ken, I can't remember, one of those. And he read, sent, him, sent her a letter and said, hey, we, my wife and I would love to have you over for dinner. And she thought, this is great. They can be like my case study. Like, this will be great, like for my paper that I want to write. Like, I can learn all about them and like try and disprove their, their faith and all this kind of stuff. So she went over to their house and they invite her in and says, listen, we know we just, we, we just want to, you know, we know that you live in town and we just want to get to know you. And, you know, we'd love to have a meal with you. And at the end of the meal, like he went in and gave her a big hug and his wife gave her a hug and said, all right, so we'll see you next week. And so this Rosario was like, oh, this is interesting. She said, okay. So she kept showing up and she ended up going over there and for about two years, never once did she set foot in their church. And she said, never once did they ask me to come to their church. Never once did he try and convert me to Christianity, but we would sit and we would open up the Bible and we'd talk through things and I asked him all kinds of questions. And over the course of that like two year period, I just came to faith in Christ because of their hospitality, because of the fact they welcomed me in and they didn't see me as a project or a charity case, but they just spent time with me and were willing to answer my tough questions and, you know, and just sit there with me. He says, I, I just, I, I fell in love with this Jesus as I saw it being modeled through these two and the way they just opened up their lives and opened up their house to me. And, and so she's now married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and a homeschool mom and wrote this incredible book on what it looks like to uh, understand hospitality. Because what's interesting from her dynamic is she says, look, when I was in the LGBT community, like every night of the week, I could go to one of my friends and like, I didn't have to tell them I was coming. I could just show up at their house and they say, of course, come on in because it was such a small little group of us. Like we kind of had to stick together and it was just like this. It was known like, of course, like if something goes wrong, I knew, I know who I'm going to go to. It's those people in my community. Those who are also on the fringe because we're like, we're each other's only options. She's like, but when you come into faith in most Christian communities, like that's not what you experience. You don't experience this like, yeah, come on in and, and come to my house. Of course, you can come over anytime you want. Here's the key to my house and my house is your house. But that's exactly what we read in scripture, isn't it? That's exactly what Jesus is asking us to do as his followers is say, look, open up your life, right? And, and bring in those that are, that are homeless and orphaned and widowed and give them a place that they can feel at home, regardless of how big or small your house may be. And so this, uh, this month, before we gather again, I just want to invite you to take a step a little bit further in, in that practice of hospitality, whatever that's like for you, right? Again, all of our practices are always invitation-based. It's never, a, you know, a, a demand or command. But wherever you're at in that practice of hospitality, let's just take one step further towards Jesus. And again, it could be something as simple as praying for your neighbor, getting to know them, maybe even having them over for a meal. Um, but just open up your life and, and be willing to host them and be willing to be uncomfortable, even if it's someone that maybe makes you feel a little, a little bit sideways or has some difficult questions. Like, just embrace that and enjoy that. Hey, this is me living out my life as an exile, uh, building and planting and, 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 and building relationships in this community. Mm-hmm.